Thank you for joining us here on Radio Maria. Coming up next, we have Catechesis with Joanna Bogle. afternoon to all our listeners. As you know, this is Radio Maria. My name's Edmund Zengeni, and it's just coming up for three minutes past the hour of four o'clock on this Thursday afternoon, the eve of Christmas Eve. And we have on the line Joanna Bogle, who's going to speak to us. I'm very interested to hear her talk about the historicity and the truth of the Christmas gospel story. Hello, Joanna. Hello. It's lovely to be on air with Radio Maria, with Christmas everywhere That's and everything right. ready. My husband is, even as we speak, going out to buy the turkey. Hooray! Wow. It's all happening. <laughs> it's all happening. So you're going to speak to our listeners, and I'm very interested in this, about the, the, the authenticity of the, uh, of yes. the nativity <laughs> narrative, shall we say. Yes, this is very important. Can't wait to start. <laughs> okay, well, I'll hand over the airwaves to your expertise and I look forward to hearing it as long and as well as our other listeners. So, after Marvellous. you. Yes. Every time we hear that lovely story of the Gospel of Luke, it takes us back, doesn't it, to times when we've heard it before. We've heard it at a school nativity play. We've heard it, of course, read aloud at church. We've heard it many, many times on some radio or TV thing about how the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told her she was to be the mother of the Messiah. And then later about how Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem and how the child, our Lord, was born and laid in a manger in a stable because there was no room at the inn. The story is so familiar, it, it sort of becomes part of the pattern of our lives. It, it becomes part of one of those things that you just hear. You hear it so often. You think, I don't need to hear this. I know all about this. And it also becomes part of Christmas. Now, Christmas, for all of us um, who are living in a reasonably normal way with a home and enough food and so on, has got all sorts of lovely traditions all around it. And this, too, becomes part of the patina of our lives. And we know, we know very well that some of this has got a certain myth about it. You know, some songs, we don't know the origin of them. And sometimes 
people will tell you something that is sort of half true. And then there are songs that we know are not true. They're just fun. They're connected with Christmas, but they don't tell the sacred story. Um, as long as I can remember, really right back to when I was a very small girl, Christmas became associated with Bing Crosby, the singer, who had a fine voice, actually, and incidentally was a, a Catholic and raised a Catholic family, singing with his rather fine voice that he was dreaming of a white Christmas, just like the ones we used to know. And I knew that in Britain, we rarely got a white Christmas. I associated the thing correctly with just a lovely song about Christmas as it perhaps really ought to be, where the treetops glisten and children listen to hear sleigh bells in the snow. All of that was part of our family Christmas. But the important point is this. The gospel story is true. The gospel story is what it's actually all about. It's all the difference in the world between the truth about you, who you are, the age you are, where you live, your parents, who you actually are, and any number of vague myths that swirl around you. Well, you may think no myths swirl around you, but they do, actually, they do. People will half remember something that you said or that funny incident that happened when you were on holiday with them or something like that. I'm well aware of that. I'm Auntie Joanna. In fact, I'm a great auntie now, eight and nearly nine times over. So there are stories about one, and these get slightly mixed up with the truth. Remember the time when, and so on. And then there are jolly things, stories that you told that get retold and then retold. And you vaguely remember when you hear them once again for the 14th time, oh, it wasn't quite like that. And then there's the truth who you are, where you live, my actual address. This is where letters will actually reach me. My actual age, no jokes, no fibbing. But facts and truth are, as people often say, and rightly, sacrosanct. They are sacred. It's very important. I am Joanna Bogle, and I'm really talking to you on Radio Maria. This is a fact. It really is the 23rd of December. Now, when we record history, we have various ways of doing this. The Roman Empire, into which Christ was born, was very specific and very accurate in recording history. And by and large, so are we today. It's one of many things we've inherited from the Romans, an understanding of the coherence of time, an understanding of the fact that you should, could, well, maybe must record history. That's why we know a lot about the various rulers of Rome, about the murder, assassination of Julius Caesar and so on. It's why we know so much about the history of our own country. If you've read Caesar's Gallic Wars, you will know about his fighting with Boudicca. We call her Boadicea, the queen of the Iceni, and so on. They really did establish facts. They really did write down history. They also knew about myths. They reported the Greek myths of old. Oh, you know about Icarus flying so high that his wings were melted by the sun and so on. They understood the difference and they, yes, understood the importance of myths. Now, the gospel story of the birth of Christ, the gospel story of the angel appearing to Mary, the gospel facts about Christ's death, resurrection, these are not myths. They're not written down as myths. They are reported as facts, and the way they are reported is emphasized by the history with which they are reported. Let me put it like this. 
If someone wanted to check that Joanna Bogle really did make a broadcast on Radio Maria on the 23rd of December, 2021, and somebody wanted to check, they might say, well, uh, was that when uh, President Biden was president of America? Oh, was that when uh, there was the coronavirus epidemic? Was that when Boris Johnson was uh, prime minister of Britain? And Radio Maria, was that in, in English language? All of that would be check, check, check. Yes, true. And if somebody said, oh, well, you know, it's really a myth. I mean, we think maybe her own name was Maria, really, and, and we don't know anything about who was ruling. It's just that we think she existed, this woman, Joanna, um, and that there was something about Maria and that she liked to tell stories. No, you could check. You could find out what was going on at the time. You could check the date. In the Gospel of Luke, he writes in Greek, and he is writing to Christians. He talks about, uh, when he's writing to Theophilus, he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. This is all very significant. He wrote his gospel and then the book we call the Acts of the Apostles, meaning what they did and when they did it after uh, the great events of Christ's death and resurrection. At one point at the beginning of, of this, he writes, I'm telling you about this, Theophilus, so that you may know about these things that have happened amongst us. Theophilus, the, the Greek, it means one who, one who loves God. And he's writing as a Christian evangelist, a Christian gospel writer, to a Christian. You need to know about what happened. You are new to the way, to the faith. You, you, know, you, you know about this. Now, I'm going to tell you, this is what happened. These things that have been happening amongst us. The Gospel of Luke goes into a great deal of detail about the birth of Christ. It explains what was happening at the time. It explains who the local ruler was. And we hear not only about the ruler uh, on the larger scene, but also the local one, Herod, and so on. We discover, and it goes into considerable detail about this, that there was a census that year. And in fact, it was the second of two census that year. It's very important that this establishes the time, the date, yes, and the place. When Herod was ruling in Judea, when this was going on, when this was the ruler, in exactly, exactly the same way that we would say it was in the reign of Elizabeth II. Or, to give perhaps a better example, because it's further away from us, and therefore belongs in sense to history, we often say, it was in the reign of Henry VII, for example. If you can't remember who he was, he won the Battle of Bosworth Field, remember? Toppled Richard III, it was the end of the reign of the Plantagenets, and in come the Tudors. Or we might say it was after the Norman Conquest, and that would immediately mean you knew it was after the year 1066. These are very specific things, and it's a very standard way of dating things, particularly in Britain, to put them in the reign of somebody. How often have you heard it said, it was in Victorian times? And in more modern history, we often say she was a post-war figure, by which we usually mean the Second World War, although you can usually check because it's more usual to say the interwar period if somebody was active after the First World War and before the Second. It's one of the ways you can check. So post-war generally means anything from 1945 to about 1965. It would be one bit of information and you would add the rest. Post-war when this and this and this were happening. So, for example, if somebody said she was a post-war baby, you know, born in the time of Churchill, you might well say, oh, but he was wartime. No, but you'd be wrong in one sense, because, as you know, he was prime minister for a while in the 50s, too. You'd check. You'd check. 
That's what Luke does. He checks. He explains about a census. He explains who the ruler was. He explains who the local ruler was. And he takes us to Joseph and Mary and explains they had to go to Bethlehem to be registered because Joseph was of the house of David. It's all extremely specific. This is not myth. This is history. It's worth comparing it to some of the other great writings of the Bible. You know, we, we talk about the Bible as a book. And one says it is a book. You've probably got one on your shelf. Many families have got more than one. Sometimes they're very cherished. I, I rather cherish one that I've got that was presented to my mother at Richmond County School for Girls in the 1930s. She was winning prizes even then. She always was a, a bright uh, a lady, got a job in a bank after she left school and, and uh, was active when the banks were all evacuated to the north of England in the war. The point is, it's a book, or is it? No. The Bible is a collection of books, a collection of books stretching through history and written at different times. And there are different books in different genres. The Psalms are a magnificent collection of prayers. They're not history. They are hymns of praise to God, hymns of repentance, hymns of sorrow, hymns of anguish, hymns that express human anger, hymns that are hugely inspired prayers to God. So much so, we use them today, and they have been used century after century after century since they were written. But they're not history. If you read the book of Genesis, it explains that the world was created by God with a sense of meaning, order, and purpose. It says that it happens. It doesn't say how it happens. It couldn't be until human beings came on the scene, brought into the being by God. Uh, there was nobody to record anything. Of course, it wasn't history as we understand it. It's explaining that it happened, not how it happened. Genesis is a very important book. It is not history in the way that the Gospels are history. That doesn't mean you discard the book of Genesis. On the contrary, it explains the order, meaning, and purpose of our universe. And that's essential. It's because we understand that our universe is not random. It didn't come into being when things clashed, as one pagan myth has it, and it's all muddle and disorder. There isn't a repetition. We're not living in a, a thousand cycles of reincarnation. No, no. It was brought in the beginning when God breathed everything into life and his spirit moved across the waters and he spoke the word. And the Gospel of John begins with the word. In the beginning was the word. Yes, that same word. And the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. And the spirit moved across the waters. That's the spirit moving across the waters of Mary's womb and the word becoming flesh. Deep stuff. But the Gospel of Luke is telling us exactly historically how it happened. When, where, what. Tax, census, local ruler, going to report to your local place to pay your income tax. Fact, history. The Gospels we need to understand are in that genre. The, the Psalms are in a different genre of prayer and poetry. Genesis is in a different genre of explanation of theology. The fact that God created and called into being all things. And just, I'm going at random through the scriptures here, but the book of Revelation is a superb poetic description of how things will be when God brings all things to a finish. Well, that's not history. It hasn't happened yet. It's an explanation of the great marriage feast of the Lamb in heaven. 
the great endless, really, nuptial mass of which our human marriage, male and female, and Christ and his church, is the beginning, the figuring of it, the understanding of it that is placed in our hearts and taught by the church. Yes, it's terribly important. It's all true. But it is not, of course, history. You and I are still living in the time after Pentecost, the days of the church, the ordinary time in which God fulfills his purposes and we look ahead to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. The book of Revelation is not history, nor is it prophecy in the sense of looking up something in a horoscope or something silly like that. It's a bringing together of all things and pointing us to what will be. The Gospel of Luke is history. It goes on being history. Check it with the other Gospels too. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very important. Every time we say the creed, the Nicene Creed, formulated at the Council of Nicaea, because it's all based on what the church knew to be true and based in the scriptures and so on, and we now recite it every Sunday at Mass, we say that Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Now, again, we hear that so often, it sounds just like something that you say, like, hi there, how are you? Uh, or on the railways, when they say, please take your luggage with you when you leave the train. But it's not a ritual statement. It's a statement of history. Christ wasn't a mythical figure. This is how he died. It was under Pontius Pilate. He was the local ruler. Check it. Get it. It's a factual history. Thank you so much, Joanna. That's so informative. And I hope everyone's enjoying this talk as much as I'm enjoying listening to this, uh, the way you're explaining how the Bible works. A lot of people mistake it as one book and not a uh, collection of books. And as you... uh, as you eloquently pointed out, it's got different genres within the, the book that, uh, that all relate together. Some are history, some are, some are poetry, some are, some are prophecy, like um, the book of Revelation that you just mentioned there. I'm going to open up the phone lines now. So if anyone would like to, uh, well, call in and ask Joanna a question regarding what we're speaking about today, which is the historicity of the the Bible, the New Testament. So if anyone wants to call in, I'm yeah. available. That's right. The number to dial is 01223-375564. I shall repeat that one more time. That's 01223-375564. And in the meantime, while you're contemplating on what to ask, we're going to have a little bit of a music break. This one's called Winter Wonderland.
That's Winter Wonderland. I'm sure you recognise that song. It's a very popular tune there. And that's, uh, well, courtesy of our priest director, Father Andreas, who brought that with him from Austria. If you're listening in, Father, I hope you're well. I hope you're enjoying the festivities that are about to, well, about to come upon us now, just in a couple of days' time. And my name's Edmund Zengeni. It's 23 minutes past the hour of four o'clock on this uh, eve of Christmas Eve, the 23rd of December 2021. This is Catechesis, and I have on the line with me a very, very fascinating person and a great friend of Radio Maria, and it's Joanna Bogle, who's been speaking about the historicity of the Bible, and in particular of the New Testament and the, the Nativity narrative. And back over to you, Joanna. Thanks. I do find this subject fascinating, and it's very important that uh, Christians understand that we can trust the Gospels, that they are historical documents. Oh, yes, they're inspired by God. They're certainly inspired, but they're writing history, and they make it clear they're writing history. And this is different, as I was explaining from some of the other genres in the Bible, notably the Psalms, which are glorious hymns of prayer and praise, adoration and anxiety relieved by uh, uh, God's presence and so on. There's an awful lot of other things about Christmas that people tend to say, oh, well, it's just the myth. And then whoever is listening in often then thinks, oh, well, I suppose the whole thing is a myth. So let's start. The birth of Christ is no myth. It really happened. And we have been numbering our years ever since. Anno Domini, the, the year of the Lord. And we can trust this partly because of the era in which to Christ was born. And it wasn't an accident. God planned this from eternity. He was born into the Roman Empire, and the faith spread through that Roman Empire, of which Britain was a part, and that's how the faith came here. I mean, there's a lot more to the story. But people say, oh, it's all medieval. Medieval? That's the Middle Ages. It was already old when we had medieval kings making merry at Christmas time. No, no, the Gospels go all the way back 2,000 years. That is no myth. It's all history. Now, there are lots of other things we do at Christmas that are great fun that have an element of myth about them. And some of them are sort of based on truth, and then a lot of myth surrounds them. Here's an obvious example. Father Christmas and Santa Claus. Now, don't worry. I'm not going to say anything that will make it difficult when your own family traditions about how and where the stockings get filled and so on are going to come into it. Don't worry. I'm just going to say this. Santa Claus. Saint Nicholas. Oh, he's a mythical figure. Oh, no, he isn't. He was a martyr and a bishop and a hero of the early church. That very early church, yes, in the Roman era. Now, there's an awful long time of the Roman era through martyrdom through to a, a time when uh, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Not incidentally always a, as good a thing as you might think it's often better if Christianity and the, the state uh, are jolly alongside by side rather than uh, the state imposing it. But let's face that for the moment and just look at Nicholas. 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 He was a bishop. He was a bishop and he really cared about his flock, especially the young. He had a special concern for children, for their practical and moral and spiritual welfare. And the story about Sir Nicholas, and there are many, is that he was concerned about three girls whose father had died and who had no money. And they were very tempted to earn money in the way that 
women have been able to down through the centuries, crudely, bluntly, through prostitution. How do you tell them not to do this? Well, you preach about it being wrong, but they were poor. They were frightened. They couldn't go out and get a job as a worker for a top office or, or into computer sales or something like that. This is the Roman Empire, three vulnerable young women. No. When they hang their stock, hung their stockings up to dry after written through overnight, he dropped three bags of coins down the chimney. And each girl had enough then to settle herself in life and to marry respectably. Now, part of this is not really true. We can't really imagine that there were three stockings and three bags of gold popped in. Of course not. What we do know is that Bishop Nicholas helped the poor and in particular was concerned about young women and their moral welfare. And stories about him are always in threes because the one thing that is extremely well recorded of him is that he dispended the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God is one in three and three in one. And he did this to counter the Arian heresy, which is the heresy that said, and still says, because it's a very popular thing to say today, that Jesus was, oh, a very good man, but he certainly wasn't God. And he, he didn't really know who he was. He just went around preaching, and in a way it was beautiful and important. That's the standard way of talking about Christ, isn't it? Uh, that's why I put on my silly voice. Bishop Nicholas was one of the stout defenders of the Trinity. And that's why, and this is where we sort of get into, as it were, myth, stories about him are always concerned with the number three. We don't necessarily know there were three girls, and we're not absolutely certain they hung their stockings up and got the three bags of gold dropped neatly into each one. No, we know the fact of his being concerned for people's moral welfare and sadly, then, as now, not all bishops are as dedicated and hardworking and concerned as they perhaps should be, uh, but he was, and he's a saint. And we know, because it's well recorded, including the actual words he used and so on, that he was a stout defender of the Trinity. Mix the two, and you get Santa Claus coming down the chimney and putting little bags of chocolate coins in your stocking. It is interesting, though, isn't it, that little bags of chocolate coins, little bags of money, have become part of the story. I, I do find that rather charming. And they're always in a little mesh bag and they're golden coins. Somehow there's still something that's lingered over centuries and been revived from time to time. And in our time, it's chocolate, little bags and chocolate coins. Another story you get is, oh, three little boys who are being captured. One version is they were going to be murdered and uh, their heads were put in a pickle jar oh, or something. What is intriguing is the story is, again, about three. And we're back to the Trinity. So you get myth and you get fact. And the name Father Christmas is interesting. We have for many centuries spoken of priests as father. We often speak of the early church as the fathers of the church. This is scriptural. Uh, when St. Paul writes to Timothy, he describes him as my dear son. Well, in fact, they were, they were not father and son in the absolute sense. He was his spiritual son, and so on. And you probably call your parish priest father. You don't have to. Traditions vary from country to country. Uh, but it's often that you call them father. I'm intrigued that Santa Claus is Father Christmas. And there's a slight father confessor bit to the story, isn't there? He knows if you've been good. He rewards you if you're good. 
and won't reward you if you've been bad, a lump of coal in your stocking if you've been a bad child, all that sort of stuff. Well, somewhere in that is, yeah, something rooted in Bishop Nicholas, who was a priest, a father confessor. I once knew somebody who was Father Christmas in a big local shop, and one of the things he found hilarious were the things the children said, but sometimes it was rather touching. He said to one little girl, as he'd said to so many others, ho, 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 and have you been good? And she shook her head rather sadly and said, no, not always. And actually, he was rather touched. He thought that was rather sincere. And he made some jolly remark about, oh, I'm, I'm sure you're going to be good and, and, and give mummy and daddy a happy, happy Christmas. And she nodded vigorously with a big smile. But there was something of the father confessor thing in that. And actually, it touched his heart. I, I remember he, he was really moved. He said she was really taking it seriously. And so he did too. He wasn't going to mock her. I can't help adding that some of the other things children said were funny. One little girl, he said, and what would you like for Christmas? A meadow, she said. A meadow? Why? <sighs> Mommy says I can't have a pony. We haven't got a meadow to put it in. Now, Father Christmas is a myth. Yes, you see? But St. Nicholas was a real person, and well-filled stockings are all part of something that makes up Christmas. Okay, so why is he involved with Christmas at all? Since he is born, lives, works, dies after the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ. Well, that's easy. Your feast day is the day you die, the day you feast in heaven. And St. Nicholas died in December, and his feast day is in December, so he gets all mixed up with Christmas. In much of the mainland of Europe, he has his own feast day, and you put your shoes out, shoes there, not stockings, interestingly, and they are filled with toys and sweets and so on. And that's on the 5th of December, and you wake up on the feast day, the 6th, and there it all is. In Britain, it's evolved into stockings on Christmas Eve. We can see the difference between this and the real history, the real story of Santa Claus, St. Nicholas. Incidentally, it's all worth finding out about his life and invoking his aid from heaven, his intercession. Please, good St. Nicholas, pray for our boys and girls in Britain today, where there's so much that is terrible that is foisted on them, often in the name of relationships, education, and so on in school, that they may too, as the girls you tried to help when you were a father here on earth, a father bishop, let our boys and girls grow to maturity with wisdom and faith and make good and wise and right decisions and do great and noble things with their lives. So, stories, myths, and history. And there's an awful lot of other real history that happens around Christmas that then sort of becomes myth. Here's another, a bit nearer to us, but still many hundreds of years ago. Thomas Beckett was the Archbishop of Canterbury. When he was appointed, he was regarded as a rather political figure. Uh, the king thought he'd, he was King Henry, that he would do his bidding and all would be well and a nice political pair, church and state, nicely united. But it didn't happen like that. Thomas Becket started to defend the rights of the church, his own duties and obligations towards the faithful, their moral welfare, the clear teaching of the church, the proper appointment of clergy. No, this isn't the king. This is me. I'm the Archbishop of Canterbury. And at one point, the king, in his rage, shouted, Who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And four knights rushed into Canterbury Cathedral, 
when Thomas Beckett was at his prayers and murdered him and his blood spilled onto the floor of the cathedral. You may know the story. It isn't a myth. It's very well recorded. And yes, it happened in December. And that's why we have St. Thomas's Day in December, a couple of days after Christmas, 29th of December. It really happened. No question about that. It's not a myth. But for many centuries, Thomas Becket and Christmas got sort of vaguely mixed up together. People would go a Thomasing on his feast day, which, as I've said, was just after Christmas Day. You went from house to house and you begged for alms in the name of St. Thomas. I'm guessing some people would think it was the Apostle Thomas, after whom, of course, Thomas Becket was named, or they didn't even know why it was called going Thomasing. And somewhere in that mix is our tradition of carol singing, which these days happens before Christmas. In fact, for us, the days immediately after Christmas are rather bleak, really. Cold turkey on Boxing Day, perhaps with a family row, you know. <laughs> then a couple of rather listless days with not much happening, and then maybe something exciting at New Year. But actually, it used to be like that for many centuries. You had a more austere time before Christmas in Advent, and you were busy making preparations for the feast, more complicated in the days before whizzing down to a supermarket and so on. And then you had the feast, and it lasted for 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas, until the 6th of January, the Feast of the Epiphany. Now, that doesn't mean Thomas was a myth. He was a real archbishop. He was really murdered. And his feast day came within the 12 days and got mixed up with Christmas. Going a Thomasing was not the Thomas of the Gospels. It was the Thomas of the Archbishop of Canterbury who was murdered, and so on. So truth and tradition get mixed up. And traditions can help to reinforce truth, or they can sometimes make you a bit muddled. But that doesn't matter so long as we hold on to the truth. There's an awful lot more. Wow. You it's... know, about the holy innocence, that's in the Gospels, and more and more. It's fascinating. Very, very fascinating. Joanna, you're like a, a walking, talking Catholic encyclopedia. <laughs> it's amazing to hear these stories. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm a cradle Catholic. I've obviously all my life been practicing. But uh, every time I, I hear you speak, I always am um, a little bit more uh, enlightened about the faith. So I hope, <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> I hope um, I'm sure our listeners feel the same. And if you'd like to call in, we've got about 10, 15 minutes left. The number to dial is 01223. Three seven five five six four. In the meantime, we'll open up the lines and there's a little bit of Christmas music.
White Christmas there, very famous tune. Well, um, actually, Joanna, I have a question. What's your um, feelings on letting children know the the myth of Father Christmas, Santa Claus? Well, this is a tricky one. I think families work it out for themselves. Everyone's got their own way of dealing with it. I have to say, when I was growing up in a very happy, jolly family in the London suburbs, uh, the way Father Christmas and stockings and everything were talked about, there was always a sort of hearty, jolly feeling. It wasn't ever taught as absolute truth um, in the way that something that was absolutely true was taught. So, for example, um, if we were going to have to go to the dentist, it would be clear, next Tuesday, sorry, everyone, we're all going to the dentist. You're having your checkup. That's it. You know, it's going to happen, if you Mm -hmm. see what I mean. Of course. And then sometimes something that seemed very unlikely, uh, but was much nicer, was also, there will be candles on your cake. It's a birthday. Well, in the ordinary way, it seems a bit weird, but by the time I was five or six, it was absolutely standard. You would actually have a cake with candles on it. It seemed unlikely. It really happened. And yet, somehow, Father Christmas and stockings were all in a slightly jolly or hearty way. Uh, There was, for me anyway, no ghastly moment of revelation when it dawned on me that perhaps, just perhaps, somebody flying through the sky uh, in a sleigh and going down the chimney. It was a bit complicated. And also, um, I think it's the tone of voice. I think it's the way you put things. I think it's the contrasting style with things that are absolutely happening, like I said, dentists or birthday cakes. Sure. Um, But I do think that families probably do need to have a plan for how we teach this. Yeah, I I think... How we make it all pleasant and jolly, but not the same as things that are absolutely factual in a different sense. Exactly. As a father of... uh, I've got three boys, and, well, the youngest Mm. is only two and a half, but the other two are eight and nine respectively, and they've kind of understood that uh, Father Christmas isn't real. And uh, it wasn't heartbreaking for me. I just said, as long as you believe in Jesus, our Lord, that's what they're celebrating. That's no myth. That is no legend. That is historical truth, as you were saying before. And we're, now we're living in this postmodern secular age where everything's relative and, you know, religion's yeah. being pushed to the sides and you're not supposed to believe anything that's, uh, that you can't prove scientifically. I was more of the, uh, of the persuasion to, uh, to underline the fact that this is about our Lord and Saviour's birthday than uh, a jolly fat guy with a white beard popping down the... the the chimney to uh, deliver the presents. I think there's some there's truth in that, and certainly the way it was handled with me many years ago was that it was it, when we were when the great truths of our faith were talked about, it was quite different. Uh, these were discussed in a completely different factual way, along with the truth. You know, you're going to the dentist, or the truth. Um, Granny is coming. You know, it's mm. so Christ was born. This is what happened, and for my mother, this was in particular an uh, important thing. Um, her father had been through the First World War, and his understanding of the faith when he became a Catholic in the 30s was something, a, a profoundly intellectual commitment that she remembered evening after evening of him talking and reading and priests right. coming and so on. It was all grounded in an intellectually in, coherent thing, sure. and that was the tradition she passed on to us. Mm, mm, this oh. is true. This is intellectually coherent. Father Christmas was different. It was all about love and fun and family life. I do actually think, and I think I understood this in my teens, by which time we weren't actually having stockings. We were doing other things at Christmas, you know. Um, We were all, of course, giving each other presents, and there was all the unwrapping of that and all that and all that. So there were lots of new things and midnight mass instead of in the morning, you know. So life rolls on as you get bigger. That's right. But I also knew that there had been, and nevertheless, in a funny way, something Almost magic in the thought of my parents buying all those things and stuffing them into stockings. There's so much love in that. 
That's in right. In a profound sense, it is true, if you see what I mean. Um, and right. I remember once my parents saying when some dear friends were spending Christmas with us, and so the four grown-ups, uh, my parents and Uncle Keith and Aunt Christine, and, were having a rather tiddly time in the kitchen over sherry, stuffing all these children's stockings. And years later, she remembered this and laughing about the absurdity. Well, it's not Father Christmas, but it's also like it somehow, isn't it? All that love and the giggles and the fun. That's right. Two men who've been through the army together, now happily married, raising children, stuffing chocolate toys and sweets and things into army socks at the Christmas table with their wives. That's in, yeah. I actually find it a charming image. That's true. That's very interesting. In fact, it reminds me of when I found out the Santa Claus wasn't real. My mother, what she used to do is every Christmas Eve leave the presents, un- uh, uh, sort of, uh, leave a drink. A little, yes. a little, little glass of brandy for yes. uh, Father Christmas. She'd pull it out, leave it under the tree. She said, "That's for Father Christmas because he's got to go around all the whole world in one day and deliver presents." And in the morning, and he needs something to warm his cockles. So in the morning, I'd come down the stairs. We'd all run down, my brother and sister, and the glass would be empty. So wow, and the presents would be there. So automatically, I put one and one together. Thought he must be real because the, I saw my mum pour the glass, leave it there. And then there were no there were no presents, and now the glass is empty, and the presents are here. Until one day, until one Christmas Eve, I woke up in the middle of the night. It was about two o'clock in the morning, and I stumbled downstairs in my uh, in my pajamas, and lo and behold, underneath the Christmas tree, I saw my mother necking back the brandy. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But you see, it doesn't traumatize you. I think it, I think if parents keep the level of the Father Christmas story is sort of jokey and stuff. I don't think it's traumatic. I, I mean, maybe so it is either. for some children. But it certainly wasn't for me. And I understood the fullness of the truth about Christmas. And then as an adult, I, I say I didn't really understand the fullness as a child. I'm putting that badly. I understood it as true. And as you get older, you realize the fullness of that truth. And very interesting it is. And um, I also think it's good for children to understand about giving presents because Yes, we got nice little things in our stocking, but we also had presents, a big present, we used to call it, from Mummy and Daddy. And we knew this was something they bought and gave to us, and we gave something back. And as you got older, you again, I realized that there was a lot of love in this. It was something you'd longed for and wanted and needed and stuff. And uh, all of that was rather simple. And, of course, parents then get a great joy from the homemade presents their children get them, or when teenagers club together to get daddy something that he really wants you know with a lot of connivance with mummy i know he would really find that helpful and all that sort of stuff yeah yeah these are precious things and much more important than hyping up the santa bit i think one doesn't hump it i think it's not as agonizing as it might be i think you don't hype it enjoy it giggle about it and break it gently to children so that by the time of their first communion, they know the difference. Something like exactly. that. Exactly. I mean, to be honest, I wouldn't mind the, the, my children knowing that it's uh, it's myself and my 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 mother and my wife who are going out, earning the money to come home and get the presents in the first time in the first place. So uh, yeah, it's not, it's not it's not a big deal. I think one shouldn't build it up as a big traumatic thing. And children being sensible will say, never mind all that. Look what I got in my stocking. And it's, I do remember the absurdity even long after I knew Father Christmas. You know, what really happened. Of course I knew. Of course exactly. I got it. But I would still show my parents what was in my stocking, which is pretty stupid if you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think it's that traumatic. Children enjoy the, if you like, the joke, the love, the fun. And above all, it shouldn't in any way be mixed up with a profound truth. And uh, another thing I think is really important, but you know, you will know this in your family, but for what it's worth, I think there's a lovely point when 
part of the joy of Christmas is you're old enough now to go to midnight mass, mm. which in a way is very exciting and it, it doesn't is. work for very small children. And all that going out in the middle of the night and coming back and hot chocolate yes. and what. It's actually, it, all, it makes up for all that stocking bit in a way because you're growing up now and you're moving on and how yes, lovely. Yes. And I, I think in a family, these, uh, you know, these gross moments are important. And then as the family grows, please God, as children grow up and marry and so on, you get new and nice things that happen and new attention. You know, who are we going to do for Christmas? And of course. The in-laws. And I remember the first Christmas I spent away from my parents for the very happy reason I was married. And we... The first Christmas of our married life, we went to my husband's parents. And when we were planning this, I was very happy about this. They were, they were lovely people. We had many, many a happy time with them. But I wept at first. Oh, I've got to be at home. And I, I didn't really mind. It was just a very emotional thought that my parents wouldn't be there for Christmas. Yeah. We were very stupid. I mean, of course, we went to see them for New Year or something. I can't remember. It's 40 years ago. Sure. But you were moving on. You're growing up. You're moving on. And that begins perhaps with the stocking thing. And now, this Christmas, um, there are loving faces who won't be around the table because they've died and gone to God. And my dear in-laws are among them, and my own dear parents are among them, and so on. Mm. Well, that's all right, too. I'm not young anymore. And part of what Christmas means to me is beautiful memories. And now I remember them and pray for their, their souls. And yes, how beautiful that the faith they taught me. Uh, you know, lives on. Yeah, I, no, you're I wouldn't absolutely want to right. be having a giggly, girly Christmas. Now I'm a woman. Of course. No, I, I I, completely agree with that. I certainly second that emotion. I lost my mother about 11 years ago and we're very, very close. And I lost uh, her in October. And then the first Christmas was terrible. The first two or three were terrible. But I yes. remember the first child I had and my wife and I were... Um, with decorating the, uh, putting up the Christmas decorations, and we were looked at each other. We're actually doing now a Christmas for our children. So I, yeah. we, so you move up a level. You move up a level, and you, you transmit. Move up a level. And like you said, you transmit the faith that was given to us by uh, yes. by our parents, which is and a wonderful year, and, and it, humbling yes, experience. How lovely! It, that's exactly it. Now this year, with my husband, we'll be having two friends for our Christmas lunch. Uh, they don't know each other, but each each of them would otherwise be on their own. And I know we'll have a lot of fun. One of them in particular is a is a whiz on, on, on local history, and I've asked them to do a quiz, and it will be fun and oh, stuff. Okay. And then as part of Christmas, you, you know, we're moving on to that. My brother and his wife will be with uh, a couple of their children, and they're expecting their ninth grandchild. That's our ninth wow. great niece or nephew. So we're we're moving on, you yeah. know. And just this morning from another batch of nieces, great nieces and nephews came a lovely parcel of beautiful homemade cards to Auntie Joanna, you know. Oh. These are, this is all moving on. This is all the next lovely stage. Exactly. And last year we were, we were sent a recording of one of our little great nieces playing the piano. And, oh, I wept, I'm afraid. I wept. It was oh. so sweet. Wow. Uh, this is moving on. It's It's... It's what we do as we get older. Exactly. And then we'll do one of these Zoom things. What are you doing? What are you doing in there? Exactly. Well, Joanna, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and sharing all this this wonderful knowledge and information and, and, and history and uh, of the faith of our, of our forefathers and how it's been uh, preserved and transmitted throughout the thank ages. You. And you are real... Treasure for Radio Maria England, definitely. You're and, very kind. Uh, well, it's uh, you're very kind to us. Very, very, uh, we very much appreciate all your support and everything you you continue to give. 
and, uh, and unceasingly. So I'd like to wish you and all of your, all of the people closest to you a very, very pleasant, happy, peaceful and blessed Christmas this year. Thank you. And to you and yours. Thank you and very you much. And to all our listeners, Merry Absolutely. Christmas. Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. That's right. The birth of our Lord is just around the corner. I'm excited about that more than yeah. more than ever I have ever been excited as a little child to open up the presents. I'm just so happy that uh, I still have to kind of pinch myself to think, wow, God became man and dwelt among us. Okay. So Merry, Merry Christmas. And Merry Christmas to you. God bless. And we'll see God you bless. in the new year. Bye. 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 